Welcome everybody and, and to today's Ascendo Reliability webinar. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And on the chat window, we've got people I've noticed from Abu Dhabi and across Europe, a couple different places and all across the states. Um, some people have better weather uh, than others, it seems like. And uh, also was just asking briefly about uh, people that I thought I'd recognize a few names of uh, folks that were in a mastermind group that we had started uh, a couple of years ago, a program to connect people so that you can talk shop, essentially. And the idea of the mastermind groups <clears throat> is that you have an ongoing discussion with a group of people that you know and trust so that you can uh, uh, really get to work on particular problems, help each other, um, all those kinds of, of topics, and, and it can range. There's no real rules to it. There's some guidelines that are suggested, but each group will be unique and different. And uh, I know we, we tried starting up a number of them last year or two years ago, and a few of them have continued. And uh, so I thought I had a couple people interested, so I thought I'd promote it one more time and, and uh, see if we can start up a few more groups because I'm finding... And getting great feedback that they are actually very, very useful. So that aside, uh, let's talk about standards, reliability-related standards. And I, obviously, I've got an opinion on these and plenty of experience. And is in the abstract, it goes the range from good, bad, and the ugly. And I'm sure that you've run into a different range of experiences also. And so I'm very curious of, of what your, your take on these are. Now, we often look to standards just in general, just as guidelines or ideas, uh, as a here's how we do something. Uh, here's a suggested way to do something. It's a common use of standards. Um, we also use it as guidance. Um, I, I know I've tapped into the Mill Handbook uh, series of standards, especially the 810, uh, which lists dozens and dozens of different ways to do environmental testing. Um, uh, yet it doesn't include everything. Yet it does include, oh, we should think about this. For our particular product and the way it's going to be used, here's the types of things, the stresses that it's going, is likely to see. And it gives us some guidance about topics or areas of stresses to consider. And we can use that in the design process or in testing process and so on. I, I did notice that the uh, Mill Standard 810 does not include uh, fire ants from Texas. And there's actually a laboratory in Austin, Texas that does fire ant susceptibility testing for products. And if you're curious about that, um, you can find it online. It's uh, not a place I want to go to um, just in case those little critters get away. Uh, and if you don't know what fire ants are, is they're a small ant that has a bite that creates a reaction that feels like your skin is on fire. Um, so it's it's not a good sensation. And having been uh, spent some time in Texas and experiencing those little critters, I don't recommend it. But so another reason we use standards is that they're imposed on us. It might be part of the contract, either that our customers saying thou shalt use XYZ standards and, and, and adhere to those standards. 
And it could be for procedural things, it could be for testing, it could be for uh, 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 different steps in a process and so on. Or we may use those standards to impose those on our vendors or on our contractors and on our subsystem uh, sub suppliers. And it's part of why standards exist is it provides a common language and set of rules, essentially, that you can include in contracts. And so it's, they're used in the legal sense. They're used as a way to communicate across organizations and within organizations. But they're also used well sometimes, and we'll get into that. So let me ask this before I get too far off into ranting about um, the bad uses of standards. One of the standards criteria that I see very, very often in a range of different industry is to expose your product to 85% relative humidity at 85C uh, temperature for sometimes 168 hours, like a week, and sometimes for 1,000 hours. Now, I'm sure you've seen this criteria, this set of stress, the high temperature, high, high humidity type experience. What does this translate to for your product? Uh, do you, I should ask it this way, do you have a way to translate this for your product? What, is this, what does this mean if you put some samples in a chamber and run it for a week at these conditions? What does that mean? Yeah, it, it did come originally from electronic items, but I've seen it on solar panels, um, which I guess are electronic. I've seen it on ceiling of windows. Um, you could use Lawson's to translate it. Huh. If you know the activation energy. Yeah, well said, Alejandro. Um, I'm not familiar with Lawson model. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I'm familiar with PEX model, and it's used for electronics, and it's for... Uh, epoxy encapsulated uh, components, um, the small black boxes that we see across our electronics. And, and it has, and Peck and did a survey of all kinds of test results using um, electronics and created an empirical model saying here's how they performed in the field versus how they performed in testing and so on, and created a generic model to interpret it. And it's considered a lifetime acceleration test. So Remy, how so how long do you run the test and how long does that relate to in your product's performance? Yeah, and it, 70 to 85C is not a lot of acceleration. I, and I wonder how people deal with this when your product is rated to go from, say, 5% RH to 95% RH, or even above, where it gets condensation. <clears throat> yeah, working on the model. Yeah, it does take work, Remy. Yeah, and Bart, you know, I've seen it where it's used as a susceptibility to corrosion, um, which is a little bit different than saying it's a life test. 
And so it's a, um, it's an interesting model. And it's one of those things that I always advise folks to do is that if you're going to use the standard um, is, well, how do you interpret the results? What does it mean for your organization or for your particular product? And I pick on this one in particular because I've seen it misused so many times. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. All right, so let's talk about the, some of the problems with them. Just get started. And this is by no means a complete list. I'm sure many of you have had other stories of dealing with standards. Now, one of my favorite is that, and I, I didn't put it on the screen, but many of you know about Mill Handbook 2.7.2.15. It's a reliability prediction uh, standard, and it's based on a parts count model. And as far as I know, it's at least 20 years old. And the, the, the data that populated the most recent version is, you know, five to 10 years older than that. So it's a pretty old standard. The basic concept has also been pretty much debunked and said, no, that's not really a valid approach. Uh, There's a, a book out and it's free, and I, I should have put the link here to it, uh, called Reliability Growth. And it's, uh, of course, it's by Michael Pecht and a, hand, and a group of other folks that talked about it, but the CALS certainly got involved with it, saying that the basic premise of parts count prediction is, is not valid. And it hasn't been valid ever. It's Yet, people use that standard, even though it's very, very old, based on technology that, by and large, has been updated and, and improved, and some parts don't even exist in there anymore. And they use that technique to do field predictions of performance. And even in the standard itself, it says, don't do that. So that's just one standard. Many of the US military standards and handbooks were obsoleted many years ago and haven't really been updated. And part of the issue is, is that the industry of creating components and parts and materials and so on is outstripped the ability for standards to keep up. And so always be cautious about looking at your standard as to what was it based on, what material set or technology is it applicable to, I actually said that word the right first time, um, and does it really apply? Now, unfortunately, many standards don't list where their boundaries are. They don't say this is for a particular class of polymers and, and so on. So it's not really a, a something that's obvious in many, many different standards. And so always be a little skeptical and ask some questions uh, about your, the use of standards. Limited application. That 8585 test, I have seen it in railroad ties. I've seen it for adhesives and glues. I've seen it for solar panels, I mentioned earlier. I've seen it for mechanical systems. I've seen it, obviously, for electronics, uh, for um, uh, wafers, where it really doesn't apply whatsoever. Uh, I've seen it in, used in so many different ways. Yet, the application is really, as a, a few people mentioned, is really just for those plastic encapsulated uh, components, PEMs. And not, not 
not really anything else. They're, they, the uh, application of those stresses is generic, right? It requires, though, a model or an understanding of what that set of stresses actually does to excite or accelerate or enhance or, uh, or whatever the right term is, uh, failure mechanisms that you're interested in. And so standards aren't just uh, uh, applied to um, environmental testing, environmental stresses. We'll, we'll expand this a little bit here. There are standards for FMEAs. And one of my favorites was, uh, I think it was the um, Society of Automotive Engineers. It was the AIAG, which I don't remember what it stands for. And goes my phone. And it, it the AIAG at one time had a, had a standard for doing FMEAs and they fixed the scale such that the idea was is that if you were working on a transmission or on the dashboard or on the, on the trunk or the boot of your car um, that you would use a comparable scale for severity, probability, or occurrence, and detection, such that you could roll it up to the overall system level. And for, as you can imagine, the scales were then artificially constrained uh, for some applications. And so while it may serve a purpose at the overall system for the individual design teams for subsystems and the components, they lost uh, resolution as to what, were, what actually were the priorities that they should be working on. And it was an artificial application of the FMEA that cross, was cross-purpose to its intention of being applied. And it solved one problem, but I, I believe caused all kinds of other problems. And sometimes the, uh, an FMEA or a process-type application um, can be in, invoked or applied, yet really doesn't provide any value. And it leads us to this check the box kind of application or check the box kind of mentality that we see all too often. Yeah, you know, and yeah, I'm, I'm looking at some of the discussion on 217. There's 217 plus, there's Telcordia, and there's dozens of other parts counts around the world. And, and there's mechanical systems also. Um, and you know, to your point, Jay, is, yeah, you need to know how to use it. And it, the underlying premise, though, um, is pretty faulty. And so that, that might be a subject for a whole other podcast or a, a, a podcast or a, a webinar. The idea of a product having a completely Siri system uh, 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 structure from a reliability point of view is faulty right from the start. Just simple electronics is we often use capacitors in a bypass filter kind of mode or just as circuit as um, signal integrity type things. And in a variety of different applications where the capacitor works like an open circuit and often behaves that way, such that even if the capacitor didn't exist on the circuit board, it would still perform pretty much the same exact way. So it adds only intermittent or marginal application. And so whether or not it's there, you still get your primary functions and it still works. 
So saying that the loss of capacitor C138 uh, will take down the entire system is false. Um, same thing for all kinds of different applications and products and product design. The, the, the idea that a parts count prediction can give you that kind of resolution is just not valid. And so um, in, in the unfortunate part is people also use these various parts count predictions to actually put information on their data sheets saying this is this expected failure rate over time. Uh, it's field application, it's field failure rate. And that's just patently false. And so it's misleading in so many ways. So let me get off my uh, um, soapbox here. Now, keep in mind that like there's, there's transportation um, standards out there. And my, let's say, oh, shake and bake and do these th kinds of things. And this will replicate the, your product traveling on a truck and whether it's on a pallet or a box or some other method of, of shipping it. We've changed markedly how we package even small handheld components, right? The, uh, the evolution of, of green packing materials have gotten rid of those little plastic peanuts and, and, and inserts and foam inserts and so on. And we use all kinds of different methods now, which are equally protective, but they're different. And so the energy transfer is very different. And we also have really changed how we move things and how often they're moved and how dis the distances they move. And, and so the, the intent of those old standards may have been, oh, we measured, a, you know, 100 different truck transports over different various roads, but we don't know. Those standards don't list where that set of vibration profiles came from. So when I used to work at Hewlett Packard, the, uh, the gentleman that sat across the seat, this, the hall for me, um, was a packaging engineer, and he routinely put sensors in uh, packages and ship them over the various ways that we transported materials. And it was a data logger and it had vibration and temperature and humidity and a handful of other sensors around the package. And it was from that data that we created the internal uh, test methods to, or profiles to test our, trans our suitability for surviving transportation. And they were nothing like the industry standards that were allegedly representing the transportation stresses. And it really matters if you are having trouble with your product making it to your customer. Using the existing industry standards as a starting point, the, the types of stresses that you should worry about, yet they are not truly representative of your product products in your packaging through the transportation methods that you use. So it's a starting point, but it's not the end. And so keep in mind that the, the standards provide a bit of information and not the whole story. And so we wish it was true. It really isn't, though. And I mentioned the 217, and it's the faulty basis. The logic underlying it really isn't valid. Um, a handful of people emailed me prior to the, today, um, knowing this topic and having found 
fundamental flaws or errors in the mathematics or errors in the logic of various standards that they dealt with. You know, the, the basic idea that you can test three samples, what was it? Um, you see it a lot in higher volume products, components in particular, is that 77 units uh, spread out over three batches of material will give you a 90% confidence of a 95% reliability or some number like that. I think it was 95, 95 maybe, which is great. But I'm really interested in part per millions of failure rates, not a 5% failure rate, right? I want single digit or, or like 10 uh, PPM failures, not 5,000 PPM. And so, yeah, it gets me some information. Just because I pass that test doesn't mean that my product is as good as we really need it to be. So do the math, check your risk. Is it really applying a suitable screen or, or logic for your application? There are standards out there that say, thou shalt always do X. Well, I fundamentally think that's bad engineering. That's bad for our industry. Um, what, what I've seen over and over again is that people say, oh, we have to do this, this requirement. Our customers expect it, or they demand it, or they used to demand it, now they just expect it, and we do it in every product. And then I ask, does it actually help you improve your product? Does it help you understand the risk? Oh, no, we always pass that test. It's no, it doesn't. And you look at it a little closer, and I'm using an, an environmental test here, is their product would never fail that just based on its technology. It's just impossible for it to have a problem. The standard was made for a completely different technology. Yet they spend money, energy, time, they proudly put it up on their data sheet at past XYZ standard. It's completely meaningless. And so the, the danger in standards is using them blindly. And, and that's, I hope, a, a key takeaway. So, so what have you seen? with standards and problems with standards. Yeah, and I'm looking back over some of the, yes, orientation, lights, let's see. Some products melt above 70C. Well, that would be a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so running it, being required to do an 85C level test would just be meaningless for your product because you already know it's not going to make it there. Um, yeah, part of some of the times the standards also don't account for the interactions of things. And I've seen this with sunlight where UV uh, and a little bit of moisture uh, can really wreak havoc on some adhesives and finishes, whereas just UV alone or just moisture alone is no big deal. Um, yeah, the the solar panel testing is great. Um, and you know, there's lots of ways those things fail. Let's use stresses that actually go after the way they fail. Yeah, and now, now Elena, I've heard that 217 plus has been updated, and it's great. Yet it's not a, it's still parts count, and it's still hidden where that data comes from. 
And so I'm, I'm not really all that enthralled with it. Now, parts count predictions do have the unstated benefit of saying, well, let's use less components. That reduces your failure rate. And let's keep it cool, especially for electronics. That reduces the, the chance of failures. And so there's some benefit to it in behavior, yet using it to predict your field performance is just folly. Yeah, you know, some standards are pretty nebulous. They, you know, do X, Y, Z, and, they, and there's no follow-on. The other part I don't like is that they say do X, Y, Z, and that's another $500 worth of standards you have to buy to get the next two pages of the standard. Others are charging you 100 euros for a standard or Swiss francs for a standard that's really a subset of a, a, a decent textbook. Right. FMEA is my favorite one. Why pay two, three hundred dollars for an FMEA procedure when Carl Carlson and others have written absolutely excellent books that cover how to do an FMEA? It, uh, doing a hypothesis test. Just about any statistics book worth its salt has many examples and many uh, procedures for doing hypothesis tests. Uh, and other statistical procedures. Why go pay 100 bucks to have somebody say this is the standard now? Yeah, Alejandro, I agree. Standards cover some cases, and that's the key point. If you know where it's useful for you, that's great. If you, if you don't understand why or how it's useful for you, then you've got some work to do. I think the, the key part of using standards is that the engineering work, the thinking work, doesn't stop. We have to understand how and why we're using the various standards. And when we don't, we run into problems. Now, there's all kinds of standards out there. And I'll go through this pretty quick. There's testing standards, right? There's standards for doing degradation testing, for life testing, for component testing, for environmental stresses, and so on, which is a whole other range of these things. Um, there's, the, I think, the most complete environmental testing standard is uh, Mill Handbook uh, 810. I lost count. I don't recall, but it's dozens and dozens of different stresses. Yet even there, it doesn't cover everything. And doing all of those stresses may or may not apply to your product. And also, some stresses really are of minimal risk to your product. So let's focus our uh, life testing or reliability testing and our environmental testing to the areas where we can actually learn something and improve our product. Where's the margins? Where's the risk? Let's, where's the areas we need better information? Then look to this range of testing and standards that are available to us, right? And then what do we need to learn? And a couple of folks have mentioned, you know, running it to failure, which is not typical in standards. Many, many standards include tests to pass. Minimum number of samples, samples run the test. If it passes, you're good. Now, I have a hard time believing that, especially when they don't help you translate it. So if I do XYZ stress and I do it for 168 hours and I do it with five samples, what have I really learned? 
Not a whole lot. I don't know if those stresses actually excited any relevant failure mechanisms in my product, unless I do a bunch of engineering work. I don't know how to translate the 168 hours of stress to our use conditions unless I have a model and activation energies and, and other parameters and measures to, to translate it. And I don't know that it actually, nothing failed. So I don't know what to do better or improve the product at all. And so what have I really learned? What have I really fed back to the design team? Right. Marketing's happy. They can do X, Y, Z, standard, 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 pass, 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 pass. But as a customer, I always ask, well, what does that mean? How does that translate to my application? It doesn't go quite far enough in most cases. Now, there's also uh, standards on techniques. Uh, I mentioned FMEA earlier. There's standards about how to run a test, how to evaluate something, how to make measurements, how to um, uh, collect data, how to analyze data, and so on. There's the IEC in particular, the dependability group, has dozens and dozens of standards about some procedure or process, uh, from data analysis to testing, uh, but also risk management. IEEE is a standard I got involved with years ago was about how to conduct an assessment and how to, what types of topics and areas that you should explore to understand a reliability program and where to make improvements. And it's, it's a touchstone. I'm not sure that putting it in a standard um, is any better or worse than putting it in a blog post. It might get more recognition. It might have more cachet. But it's still the same process, and it still needs to be adapted to your local circumstance. Now, there's plenty of techniques, procedures out there. Um, vast majority of them are in the literature or in our, our, are commonly available. So uh, unless you absolutely have to cite a standard for, say, doing an FMEA, what's the point? The, there's a, a $20 small paperback book that by McDermott at all that covers the essence of how to do an FMEA. Why go spend hundreds and hundreds of, of euros or Swiss francs to, to get a standard that says the exact same thing? So I, I have a hard time with some of that stuff. And then there's safety standards and regulatory requirements. You can call those standards also. Now, the safety stuff often is very uh, dependent on your industry. Right, there's twice safety standards, and one in particular is small parts or detachable parts for a choking hazard, for example, in the different age groups that your product is intended to be used for or could be exposed to. And there's rightfully a variety of collected wisdom about what works and doesn't work in those areas. Um, I ran into a standard that a group was doing, they were making a, a wristwatch type or a wrist worn. Um, uh, uh, fitness tracker, like a Fitbit, but it was a different company. And they wanted to know if it was going to be a, uh, water resistant it's because they knew people would wash their hands or they could take a shower or they go swimming. And those were parts of their advertising. Those things would happen. And so 
they went to the watch industry because that's wrist worn and we see some or most of the same types of stresses dealing with moisture and water and the trouble was is that the watch industry uses a, a sealed compartment right it's hermetically sealed essentially whereas these guys were using just a, a polymer seal and they had connectors on it they had ports open to it now the standard wasn't terribly useful the standard was dip it in a bucket of water for 10 seconds take it up uh, shake off the excess fluid on the outside and if it's still working at that moment it passes so the the watch industry when they say it's water resistant to a meter they put it in a bucket of water one sample to three feet to one meter for 10 seconds picked it up shook off the excess and if it was still ticking it was good so it's not a terribly rigorous test now i don't know about the the metal encased watches and and i've never used i've used watches that were water resistant because i've used them for swimming and triathlon type stuff certainly plenty of sweat on them and they work just fine but knowing that they passed the standard for resistant to water at one meter depth really wasn't the useful information back to the group now safety standards i don't spend a ton of time in that area i know that there, there are guidelines for designers and for products in different industries they're required for getting into industries but because you have a, a ul stamp or a csa stamp or a tuv stamp on your product um, helps cover some of the safety factors or concerns and issues with your product, yet they may not cover everything. So uh, don't use it as a false shield. So now I've kind of ranked or rated, you know, just ranted on a whole bunch of standards there. So hopefully I haven't mentioned any of your particular favorites. Which ones do you use that are actually useful for you? Which standards do you find useful? And maybe just a note on why. Yeah. You know, the trouble, Brian, I had trouble with my watch. It was, I don't, I don't even remember the brand now, but it was a, meant for triathletes. And the problem I had is that when it got wet, it was so distorted the view of the screen that it was hard to read. You had to stop and wipe it off and, you know, just to be able to read it. So it did have a recording feature so it captured you know all kinds of other telemetric stuff as i went it was one of the early entrants in the uh, the fitbit type market uh, but it was it was pretty cool and it did get beat up pretty good um, over a couple of years i did that stuff so what what standards do you go to that are useful things for you Yeah, 810. I know I touch that one all the time. I use it as a starting point, though, as I mentioned earlier. It, it gives me, well, here's the types of stresses that we should consider. And if there's risk there for us, let's use this as a starting point to see how much problem there really is. 
I think fungus is one of my favorite ones. There's JDEC standards. Uh, um, what's the, the ones for solder joint uh, creation and uh, circuit board uh, manufacturers? Uh, I want to say IPA, but I think that's a beer. Um, IPC. Yeah, there you go. You read my mind, Alejandro. Yeah, and that's a good point, Brian. Is use it as a framework or starting point for you? And Remy, what is JDAC 47? Um, I know there's one out there for um, three-point test. I saw the corrosion test there. There's the AS standard for three-point test. There's a standard out there. Um, but some things, you know, there's a variety of standards that are in works or trying to be created for things like tin whiskers. But we don't really understand the science well enough to know that one or more of the tin whisker test susceptibility testing actually does its job. We don't know why it works in some cases and not in others. That's something to be careful of. Oh, okay. Thank you, Remy. All right. Yeah, so, I mean, there are standards out there um that are useful and i really appreciate brian's comment is that there's their framework or a starting point and then you come up with how it applies in your your case all right so as you know there's tons of different sources of standards the military has mill standards and british ministry of defense i know the french and the japanese and chinese australians uh, many many other countries have standards because in many cases the military organizations are a large procurement organization and they're creating requirements under contract to their suppliers and it's all over the board the at least the u.s military standards are public they're, they're not copyrighted and so they've been replicated all around the world which is fine it gives us a common language to to work with our our products and systems and so on now they've increasingly become less and less relevant as we've moved to more and more of a consumer products market. More and more of our suppliers and vendors primarily deal with consumer products. And, and so there's this not a, a, a huge body of standards for the consumer market. And one of those things going back to outdated is drop testing. So the drop test for a phone um, the last time I looked was um, drop it 10 times, or I think it was maybe 20 times on various faces. And some standards say do it randomly, and others do it on particular edges of, or faces under, on different kinds of surfaces. Yet, just because you pass that doesn't mean your product is not susceptible to damage when it's dropped. Um, it doesn't guarantee that it's good. Um, it's a starting point, and it lets you then move on to, well, how do our customers use this product? How likely is it for it to get dropped? What's our, our limit or margin on this? Let's drop it 100 times, and if it passes that, and we still get drop failures in the field, maybe we're not doing the drop the way our customers do. Let's think that through. I want to mention the British uh, Ministry of Defense standards. There's, there's one of my favorite standards of all times. It's called the reliability case. And it's basically saying, in 
supplier, you need to create a product that is meets our reliability requirements in this environment. So we want 98% reliable over two years. And then let's detail the use case and environment that we have. It's supposed to do this function that should sound very familiar to a reliability definition, right? And so supplier, you need to convince us that your product, your design, and your manufacturing process will actually deliver that. And it's akin to a legal case. You can make an argument that you understand how your product works and doesn't work and where the margins are. And that's what we're looking for, is that you understand the limitations to your product and how and where it's going to fail. And it's using the standard of reliability case. It's instead of saying, do HALT, do FMEA, do this test, do this test, do this test. It's saying, we're not going to tell you what specifically to do in your design and evaluation and creation of a product. But you need to convince us that you've done due diligence to ensure that the product will meet our requirements, which is a different take. And I think it's brilliant. And there's tons of other military standards out there. But that, that reliability case is one that um, is well worth taking a look at. Yeah, and Jit, you're right. Many of the mill standards are free. So it um, has a distinct advantage. Now, I listed just a few that came to mind as I'm creating the slide. I've worked with IEC standards, the dependability standards in the past. I've worked on various IEEE standards, the, that reliability assessment one in particular I've worked on. There's a whole range of ISO standards. More and more that's becoming risk management is becoming a big part of that. ANSI is, and ASTM are really great at dealing with detailed procedural type things. Um, there's uh, space agencies. Oftentimes, those are publicly available standards, NASA and the European Space Agency and others. Uh, there's hundreds more. I didn't even get really going on what they're started on. Oftentimes, they're industry-specific you know, or, or market-specific. And so it's usually pretty obvious where to go. A very, very hard question to answer for somebody, especially a startup, is, well, which standards apply? Well, the ones that apply are the ones that are useful for you, either from a marketing point of view or for design and assembly supply chain management point of view. If it's not valuable to you or your customers, then it's not relevant, right? If it's regulatory, then it's a condition of doing business in that market. But if you never plan on selling in, in Europe, well, getting a European certification might be a feather in your cap, but not terribly useful for anybody, right? Unless you have a savvy US customer that says, I want the, C the European uh, TUV certification. And then there's corporations. Uh, Hewlett Packard, when I worked there, we had all kinds of internal standards we'd share with our suppliers and vendors. And internally, we had our own environmental test manual to set up and organize how we evaluated our products and interpreted the results. So a question here for you to think about, right? And I'm trying to remember if I've got that. And I, I think it was Brian that mentioned, use the, the available standards as a starting point and then create your own. Make it useful for you. ARP, I'm not sure what that standard's about, Jay. What, where's that from? Every time I do a webinar, I learn something new. 
yeah, automotive guys, and they tried to harmonize their standards in Detroit to the um, uh, AIAG, which I forget what it, Automotive Industry something group, um, Association of Automotive Engineers or something like that. Um, Aerospace recommended practice. Thanks, Jay. Yeah, SAE is like IEEE. They create a whole slew of their own standards, um, which is all great. Automotive industry action group is the action part. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, and there's, as you know, there's gazillions others out there. Now, let's talk just briefly about some of the best practices, and I've touched on many of these already. You know, sometimes our customers going to say, you have to use this SAE standard XYZ, or this IEEE standard, or this ASTM to make this measurement, or whatever it is, right? Well, you can push back on it, saying, how is that relevant? How is that useful? Or so on. And at some point, somebody's going to say, no, we just have to do it. Well, I, what I found is a good practice is to, well, just do it. But also take a close look at the standard. And what is it trying to achieve? And can I continue applying the stress? Or can I adapt that standard, you know, do the core of what it says it needs to be done, and then keep going, extend it, add more stress, uh, take the next step, do the next process in that so that it actually becomes valuable. What I try to do with customer-required uses is not do it just as a check-the-box, right? If that's the only thing we're doing for it, and it's a condition of sale, well, let's recognize that and plan accordingly. But there's, if you're going to go through that effort and use samples, for example, or get people in a room for a process, let's actually try to make it useful. And so it's a yes and. Yes, we have to do this standard and we can make it useful is kind of my approach to, to those that are being imposed on us. One of the, the contrary of this, the way not to do it, is I ran into a client that um, the customer required an FMEA and according to XYZ standard. And so the group said, well, we have to do that. And so they took their bill of material and other relevant information and handed it off to a consulting group that created an FMEA report, which the engineering team never saw. But they were able to check off with the client that they actually did an FMEA. Now, I don't know what the customer actually did with that, other than say, oh, they did the FMEA, we can pay for that. So keep in mind that an FMEA is a risk tool, a risk identification and prioritization tool to help you focus your design to make a better product. Now, if the actual behavior is not to use it in that regard, then why are you requiring it and why are you not using it? You know, let's actually use this tool for what it's intended to be used for and not just check the box. So my intent is, as a best practice, is if a customer requires it and it's useful, it's great. Let's just do it and do it to the best ability that we have. If it's not useful in and of itself, let's expand it or extend it or improve it so that it, we can accomplish two objectives, the customer requirement and make it useful. 
So just to reinforce that is basically like the 810 standard on environmental uh, testing. It's a great starting point, right? The trouble I have with it is it says do X, Y, Z to this many samples and then you're good. Without explaining, was this looking for a aging effect or a degrading uh, a degradation type effect or a susceptibility to indicate that it's going to be susceptible to it? Or what is it act, that set of stress actually trying to accomplish and to what degree? And so sample sizes, application of stress, and interpretation to your use conditions are generally missing. So add those. Do the research. Find the information. Uh, as a number of people mentioned, is use it as a starting point and then go on from that. And there's a lot of good information in a wide range of standards, yet I think they often stop short of actually being useful. So extend it. Think it through. How can I make this actually relevant for what we're trying to accomplish for this activity, whether it's conducting an FMEA or doing an assessment or running a test. So adapt it, right? Our industries and our material sets and our technologies are changing at amazing speeds. The ability of a standards body to keep up with that is it's just not there. We're just not keeping up with it. And so being able to use the acquired and published knowledge of the folks that take the time to go put together a standard as a guideline or a framework, and, and I, I think it was Brian that mentioned this, is just, it's a great way to do this. Then adapt it. Make it your own. Make it actually useful for your objectives of creating a reliable product or system. So it, it, it's tough. It is tough to do. It takes time. And unfortunately, I don't think standards allow us to not think or to not do the engineering work that we're paid to do. Um, if you want to just adapt and use standards as they are, um, I'm afraid that the results you'll get will be um, by chance. Um, that your design team thought through a number of things or you, you identified and found some issues and solved it. Unfortunately, I think you'll also not find a whole slew of things that you really need to be aware of and, and capture in your design process. A big part of what we do in the reliability world is enable our design teams to make good decisions. And saying that we did 15 different standard tests and they all passed, does that really help our designers? You know, let's think that through a bit. Yeah, and Remy, you know, you're bringing up this different customers required variants of the same test, and, and sometimes they're incompatible with each other, right? Um, one test doesn't cover all of the uh, requirements for the different customers. And I think that's a big motivator for why there are so many standards out there is to then say, all right, customers, let's all use this piece, this one element of it. Now, in that case, Remy, I would go back to those customers and say, what is it you're trying to achieve by asking us to do this, this, this standard, this activity? And let's understand what the failure mechanism is or what the risk is or what we're trying to accomplish. And if that 
is tailored to their application of your product, it may be they thought that through and this is what works for their organization. And they're breaking with this idea of using a standard. And whereas if you can give them that reliability case, you know, here's the set of stresses, here's how we know it fails, here's how we know it'll work in your application, it may give you that central point to accommodate the range of different applications that you're seeing. Now, unfortunately, and I know you've seen this, is that you get a customer that says, that really doesn't understand the physics or chemistry of what's going on or understand reliability engineering at all. And they say, just do this test, otherwise we're not paying you, right? They have the power of the purchase at that point. Either you do it or you don't. It adds costs to the overall uh, program um, if you especially do an incompatible testing for different customers. It just adds time and energy to something that you're already trying to do a good job at. I don't know a way around that other than getting way up front and being very clear about how your product will meet the various applications that your range of different customers will use. I'm not sure if that helps or not. Yeah, and Brian, yeah, you know, and some standards, yeah, like you said, are written around a, a particular machine. And then the machines change or we move on or we don't have it anymore. You know, realize that the standard really only applies for that piece of equipment. A, a well-written standard will call that out, right? Whereas others don't, and that's unfortunate. All right, so just as a wrap up here, let me move over to my uh, uh, conclusion site. So some of the links are still there. Um, Standards are out there, and there's all kinds of reasons that they exist. And, and some of it is, is to streamline our communication among the different organizations, whether internally or in our supply chain or with customers. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, some of them are actually useful. They do provide a, a collection of information, in some cases well-written with the as enough information so that you can actually understand the basis and the boundaries and the application of the particular standard. In other cases, they're not, right, unfortunately. Now, sources, there's many, many ways standards come into existence. There's standards uh, bodies that want you to use their standards and get them into the contract language so that everybody has to buy their own copy of it. Um, you know, I've often thought that if a standard was really intended to serve the purpose of improving communication and streamlining our supply chains and our customer interactions, they would be free. They would not cost anything because they serve the purpose of improving our ability to, to work together. And therein comes the benefit. But when you have an international body uh, charging um, hundreds of dollars for a five-page standard and it's and I can point you to a couple in particular that do that I'm like well what's the purpose here are you a money-making organization or is the charging of it mean that it's better I've worked on standards that are free I've worked on standards that are paid for and I can tell you there's really not a whole lot of difference in effort that goes into creating them um, Pick and choose. Some are required, some are relevant to your industry, some are 
touchstones for you to work on. Um, look for the ones that are necessary for your organization, and then as you can, get involved with that process. How can you help make standards better for your industry? And the bottom line, though, is standards exist. They are a wonderful collection of test procedures, of uh, process uh, steps, of uh, communication devices, uh, common definitions of terms and, and algorithms and so on. Yet it's in our use of them that makes them valuable. And so understanding the, the pros and cons and limitations and benefits of different standards helps us to actually use them appropriately for our customers, for our business, for our products. And so it's, that's my two cents on, on standards. Thanks for joining today. And um, it, there's a handful of uh, links over here. I know that Behringer's has got a whole listing of different IEC standards and a few others. Weibull.com has a whole listing of mill standards, and I think that you can download them directly right there. <clears throat> I know there's many, many other sources uh, out there and compilations of standards, and I, I need to find some of those. Yeah. Uh, Mari Raja, I, if I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce that right, you're very welcome. It's part big part of why I do these uh, webinars, is to help folks get a, uh, up to speed, so to speak, of uh, all those things I've learned over the over the years the hard way. I'm very happy to share them. So thanks everybody. And just always have this moment. Did I actually start the recording? I think I did. Um, and thanks to everybody that joined uh, and participated in the chat window. I appreciate all that. That helps make these uh, actually a lot more inter inter interesting for I think all concerned. So I appreciate that. Yeah, you're very welcome, David. Appreciate the comment. Same, Brian. 